Our teaching text this morning is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 12 and chapter 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been, done, had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. And now, John 19, verses 28 through 30. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word of the Lord. There's a moment that took place in our family's life in the fall of 2005, and uh, it's one of those that I don't know that I will ever forget. Um, uh, what was happening was we were approaching the city for the first time, um, not as a visitor, but coming here to live. And um, we, we came in uh, over the George Washington Bridge, and you can see the archways from way off in the distance, and you feel like you've been, we felt like we'd been driving uh, forever. But I remember that combination that sort of struck me as I realized, oh my gosh, that's like one of the New York bridges. We're, we're, we're doing this. We're really, we're really here now. And there was some relief. There was some wonder. Uh, there was some slight nervousness that accompanied that, that moment. Now, I want you to picture, uh, this is back, you guys remember back when you had to print MapQuest directions? You had to print like 36 pages. You're going on a road trip, 36 pages of directions. Like I, it's amazing to me that like the iPhone came out since I've lived in New York and literally changed everything. But we have our 48 pages. Um, I want you to picture we got the U-Haul apparently had just redone their fleet. And, um, but we got one of the last ones. Um, as we were leaving South Carolina, we got one of the last ones. And so the steering wheel was about this big. Um, and you couldn't hear, the engine was so loud, you couldn't hear anyone in the cab. So it was myself, Allison, my wife, and then my friend Daniel, who was coming helping us to move. And we literally shouted for 14 hours on the road, like, where do you guys want to stop? And just like drive, driving like this. And so we finally, we're pulling, we're pulling into the city. Oh, our truck broke down in Richmond. And we like called U-Haul, like, what do we do about it? And they're like, oh, take all the stuff off that truck and put it on a different truck. Oh, sweet. Okay, cool. We'll just do that then. And, uh, and I remember like backing the two trucks up to one another, just like, doo, 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 doo. and like all day long, Daniel and I were, 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 were dying. Um, but I passed through these arches and it really felt like I've arrived. I've arrived in, in New York. I've done, I've done this. And it was, it was two hours, 37 minutes and 87 turns later that I actually got to my apartment in, um, in Astoria. And, uh, <laughs> when I think about that moment, I still, I still like every now and then when I'm going over like the Verrazano or the George Washington that have those arches, I'll think about that moment of pulling in that huge U-Haul. And um, 
E.B. White, who, who wrote uh, Charlotte's Web, has an essay on New York that you know, has, has, has made the rounds. And I kind of think about his essay in, in regards to that moment of our life. Many of you will be familiar with this. But he says this. Um, this is written a, a, long, a long time ago, back in the 40s. He says, there are roughly three New Yorks. The first is the New York of the man or woman who was born there, who takes the city for granted and accepts its size and turbulence as natural and inevitable. Second, there is the New York of the commuter, the city that is devoured by locusts each day and spat out each night. <laughs> Sorry, if you commute. Third, there is New York of the person who was born somewhere else and came to New York in quest of something. Of these trembling cities, the greatest is the last, the city of final destination, the city that is a goal. It is this third city that accounts for New York's high-strung disposition, its poetical deportment, its dedication to the arts, and its incomparable achievements. Commuters give the city its tidal restlessness, natives give it solidity and continuity, but the settlers give it its passion. And whether it is a farmer arriving from a small town in Mississippi to escape the indignity of being observed by her neighbors, or a boy arriving from the Corn Belt with a manuscript in his suitcase and a pain in his heart, it makes no difference. Each embraces New York with the intense excitement of first love. Each absorbs New York with the fresh yes of an adventurer. Each generates heat and light to dwarf the consolidated Edison Company. Listen. No offense to the uh, actual people who were born here, because honestly, we, we all want to be you. Um, I, many times in my life, I've, I've wished you know, for the credibility, the experience, the sort of birthright swagger that comes from being born in New York. But, um, but I, you can't live anyone else's story, right? And so my story involves coming here. It involves going through those arches. It involves all that mixture of enthusiasm and excitement, and then getting here and be like, what have I done? I have no idea what's happening. This is so expensive. Um, but right, you'd never, there, there's so many things like you'd never do unless it was a certain time of your life. You have that right mixture of hope and enthusiasm and youthful ignorance, and it just pushes you past some barriers that should be there. Um, but when I crossed the George Washington Bridge that day, I felt like I was arriving for something important. My, my, uh, you know, my, my wife and I had, uh, had, uh, I'll say, I'll say more about this, but, um, we, we, we had left a stable job. Uh, so much had happened to us in, in, in the last year, and it felt like God was, was leading us into, into, this, into this city. And um, I felt like I had arrived for something important. And I, and I mention that because at its most basic level, what Palm Sunday is, is a story about a boy who grew up in a small provincial area who's riding into the big city. And he's grown up, and he's a, he's a, he's a young man now, uh, but that's what, that's the basics of what's, what's happening here. Um, uh, I'm just going to give you full confession. Okay. This, you ready for this? And like, I just read like 15 articles on this and this is do not do this, but I'm going to do it. Okay. Um, for 10, for 20 years, I've been preaching messages and I've used paper the whole time. Okay. And today, I was like, I'm going to make a switch and be ready for Easter. I'm going to preach from an iPad because I print like 87 pages a, a week out for different messages. So, so I'm preaching from a screen, and it is absolutely jacking me up. Um, it's messing. I miss really crucial things that I wanted to say already, okay? So I just want you to feel a little bad for me. This is... Um, 
professional speaking one-on-one, they tell you when it's going bad, just, just get all your garbage out there for everyone to see. Um, everything's going to be fine. By Easter, like you guys, I mean, we're going to have this nailed by Easter, so don't worry. Um, Jesus knew more than anyone what he was coming to town for, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's hard to imagine the, the mixture of emotions that would have been present in him on this day as he's sort of cresting the hill and sees the city walls for the first time and sees the familiar skyline of, of Jerusalem, uh, though of course it would be different than it is today. Back in the first century, you know, he, he came from Galilee for, for several times, you know, more than likely each year. If they could afford it, his family would have traveled to Jerusalem for the festivals. And so he knows what it's like to enter this city, but this time he's coming for something different. This time uh, he, he, he's not just coming to observe the Passover. And so on one level, uh, it w- I believe that it would have felt like every day of his life had somehow been building up to this moment. And then Actually, something quite bizarre begins to happen. Um, Jesus is approaching the city, as I said, perhaps getting his first glimpse of the walls of Jerusalem, letting, letting him know that he's almost there. And, and whatever we think that's happened from, from like what we remember now from Palm Sunday to Easter, like whatever we call it, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for a very specific reason. He's coming for the Passover. This is an annual celebration of Israel where they remember that they had been enslaved by the most powerful empire in the world, right? That's why Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, to remember that their God, Yahweh, had rescued them, had had come in in power, had confronted the power of Egypt, and in his love, in his might, had, had, had literally rescued them, pulled them out of slavery. And he had done that through the sacrifice of a lamb and through passing through uh, the, the, the Red Sea. So it's Passover. This is the holiday that everyone is expecting to be celebrating on this week. But as Jesus is approaching the city, and this is the bizarre part, people come running out and putting down palm branches. Now you and I are like, okay, whatever. And it was a, it was a scholar, one of the sort of best living New Testament scholars that helped me make this connection preparing this this, this past week. But um, they're celebrating the wrong holiday with with the palms. They're, they're actually doing something quite different than you would normally do on, on Passover. You see, just over 150 years uh, before the time of Jesus, there had, there had been uh, a, a, a Jewish military leader named Judas Maccabeus. And uh, he, was, he would later have the coolest nickname in the intertestamental period, which I know you have those ranked somewhere. Um, he was called the Hammer because he had driven out um, the, uh, the foreign occupiers, the, the foreign oppressors from Israel. And there had been horrific things that had taken place in the temple. And as Judas Maccabeus and his entourage of military leaders were rolling into Jerusalem to rededicate the temple, his followers came out and waved palm branches and called him king as he entered into the city. So there's this old prophetic expectation that's in Israel's prophets in Zechariah, which gets quoted in the text that we just read. But then there was a present day uh, ceremony of, of, of remember the golden age when Judas Maccabeus, the type of Messiah, the type of leader that we're looking for, drove back the foreign oppressors. When he was coming into the city, we came out, we waved palm branches, and, and, and then and Judas Maccabeus went into the temple and rededicated the temple. The, the, the previous leader had sacrificed a pig on the altar. The abomination of desecration had taken place. It was like a horrific thing. So they have to rededicate the temple. They're in the middle of rededicating the temple and they've only got oil to keep the lights going for one day. But then miraculously the oil is extended and burns for more than one day for eight days. And so what is that? 
Hanukkah, right? So everybody's there to celebrate Passover, and these people run out celebrating Hanukkah. Honestly, it's a little bit strange. This is, it's like showing up 4th of July for a barbecue. I'm here to celebrate freedom, and you show up, and your friends are wearing sweaters and singing carols and serving figgy pudding. You're like, guys, do you know, do you know what day it is? But Jesus had been planning this day for quite a while. He gets the donkey through, you know, like, really amusing method, which we won't get into. But he gets the donkey, and he's riding in, and he's expecting these palm branches because he intends to combine Passover and Hanukkah. He, he intends to, to bring these two stories together. <laughs> these two prevailing themes, these two dominant motifs in his people's history. So... A couple of things, like I mentioned that he arranged to get the donkey through mysterious means. He sends his disciples in and, and they get it from this guy. It looks like they're stealing it, but the guy's like, no, I understand. I, I got this in a dream or something. He lets him have the donkey. And then, and then also it says, and, the, and this is interesting, almost always when Jesus does a miracle, um, he will uh, quiet people down about it. Like he doesn't allow his, his reputation and phenomenon to grow because of the miracle that he performs, but he doesn't do that when he heals Lazarus from being dead. And so one of his most profound miracles, he allows his reputation to swell in preparation for coming into Jerusalem and being crowned king and having, having the palm branches, wa- palm branches waved. So, He's taking this pathway predicted by Israel's prophets. He is indeed saying, I am coming as king. Now, earlier in Jesus' ministry, they tried to make him king, and he slipped away, right? After the feeding of the 5,000, like, okay, here we've got a guy who can make people who are sick well. We've got a, people, a guy who can make people who are hungry full. This is the type of people we need as, as a leader. This guy obviously has power. Let's make him king. And Jesus slipped away. But now, for some reason, the time has come, and he's willing to accept their cry, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes as the king of Israel. He's coming as a king. He is coming as a deliverer and a freedom giver. He is coming to town, and it is Passover, and somehow also it is Hanukkah. In fact, Jesus does the same thing that Judas Maccabeus does. He goes right to the temple and purifies it. (laughs) And he does it in a a way that like throws us off. Jesus, meek and mild, carrying lambs, welcoming children. All of a sudden, he's making whips and flipping over tables and saying, this place is going to be a place of prayer, not a place of, of, of commerce where you take advantage of the poor. So he's coming as, as king, and by the end of the week, he's going to be dying as a true Passover lamb. The, the bringing together of these two streams is tremendously important for our understanding of Palm Sunday. He's coming somehow as the Passover lamb and as the king. So the people run out to Jesus, and, the, and they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, and he welcomes them. John, John includes this detail from John, from, from, from John 12. He says, now the crowd that was with him when he, when he had called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this side, went out to meet him. Wouldn't you? <laughs> this guy's coming to town who raised someone from the dead. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is going nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone out to him. The Pharisees are in, in, a, in a mess at this point. Their power and influence is being threatened at every turn. Now, 
I, don't, I know you don't feel sorry for them because Jesus is kind of always sticking it to the Pharisees, but let me tell you, this was supposed to be their week. Passover is one of those times where people are gonna come back to the temple. This is the time where, where, we're, we're, where we are really meant to shine. Everyone's coming in for this big, big religious ceremony. This is the time when they guide people to know and approach Yahweh, but they also felt threatened, and it wasn't just Jesus. Because what was Passover again? a celebration of freedom from a dominant military power that they had been under the thumb of, right, Egypt. So if you're the dominant military power in their lives at this point, Rome, when Passover comes, you know this is not the time where you want people to be getting ideas about, look what God did in Egypt, maybe he'd do the same, no, 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 don't get any ideas. And so right around the same time that Jesus would have been processing into Rome, humble and riding on a donkey with people waving the plants at him, more than likely, Pilate would have been coming into Jerusalem as well. We've talked about this in years past, but Pilate for the most part lived by the sea at Caesarea Philippi, but around the time of the big holidays and especially around the time of Passover, he would have come triumphantly processing into Jerusalem with the Roman legion behind him. So you picture him riding the white horse, full dress armor, spear in hand, coming in saying, listen, we are in charge here. Do not get any ideas whatsoever. So already the Pharisees are like, our big day is coming, it's Passover people, look to us to to, to guide them to know Yahweh. And already on one side, they're getting pressure from Pilate and from the Roman legion and the fact that they're saying, listen, have your little party, but remember who's in charge. And then all of a sudden, the one group of people that's supposed to be there is the devout and the faithful are tramping out to see this upstart rabbi from Galilee with a rural accent who's apparently done a few signs and wonders, but they believe is probably drawing people away from true Judaism. And, 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 and they say, look, we have to do something. <clears throat> John tells us that, that some of them had been thinking they were going to kill Lazarus because his presence was causing a bunch of people to go and follow Jesus. But on this day, they realized uh, killing Lazarus is not quite going to be enough. They're going to have to kill Jesus. And so the people are running out to Jesus and they're shouting, Hosanna. They're saying, save us. What they would have cried to Judas Maccabeus or anyone who could bring military deliverance and they're, they're calling him king. Now in broad strokes, uh, we won't get into a bunch of historical examples that prove this, but they're there. Um, there are three things that in broad strokes Israel looked for from their kings. Valor. Wisdom and justice. Trace the stories of Israel's monarchs and and what they're looking for is help with their enemies, decisions about what to do in in crucial moments, and justice to be done in the most difficult of situations. Jesus is going to meet actually all three of these these expectations. He's going to deal with their enemies. He's going to give them a way of life that is the way of God, and he's going to help bring justice to to them. But he's not going to do any of them quite in the way they would have expected. So he's going to meet the expectations of Messiah, but he's going to do it in a way that's not just for one generation. Let's set you free like Judas Maccabeus and his violent revolt was able to set one generation free before the next empire came around. He's trying to start a perpetual revolution of peace. And so he can't bring about a perpetual revolution of peace in the same way that you bring about a military overthrow. So the religious leaders are there, right? We're picturing this scene. They're seeing the crowds. 
They're calling this man king and, and, and crying out, save us, and they know this will not do. It cuts right to their hearts, to their power, to their jealousy, to their whole structure of the world is being confronted. But also, like if they need another rationalization, what he's doing might start a war. You can't go around saying you're the king if Caesar is the king. So, they launch a plot to catch and kill Jesus, and, and they're they fumble a lot, but this actually works. I think they would have been a little bit surprised that their, that their plot to catch and kill Jesus works. And, and it's, it's successful because Jesus hadn't just come to town, of course, for a coronation ceremony to be called king. Uh, he had also come to be this, the Passover lamb for the whole world. Not just to deal with the enemy of Rome or Egypt, but to deal with the very deepest plagues of the human heart of selfishness and pride and rivalry, lust, hatred, racism, those things that we can't root out of ourselves, it seems, by our own willpower, but we have to have help with. And then even to confront our our greatest enemy that throws down a gauntlet at our feet every single day, the enemy of death that says, hey, your time is coming. What is going to matter in a thousand years from your life right now? So N.T. Wright, I said, you know, one of the, the foremost New Testament theologians in the world says Jesus is coming as the true king, the true rescuer, and the true bringer of freedom. And this, this means something, right? He's not just coming to make our side win or help our personal story go the way we want it to go. But he's setting us free from our small trap stories of self and inviting us into the most wide and glorious story that has no end. It is a story of love and self-giving and abundance like the world has never known. So first day of the week, first day of Holy Week, which we call it now, but they didn't call it then. They called it Passover week. He comes into town like a king, but it is not finished yet. Well, let's flash forward to the end of the week where Jesus would say it is finished. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a, a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received a drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Many of you will have heard this before, but the phrase right there that Jesus utters, it is finished, is translated in the Greek, tetelestai. He cries out this, this word, tetelestai. In the first century, when a family like Jesus' family, who many scholars believe had worked as a stonemason or a carpenter of some sort, when they would have completed a project and given you know, the issue of payment to, uh, to, to, to their customers, when, when the bill had been paid, the word that was stamped on it was tetelestai. It is finished. When a prisoner might be required as they're moving from one town to another and they have to register with the authorities, when they, when they come to show uh, that they, they've been convicted of a crime, they have to show that they've paid the penalty for that crime. They have to show that the debt has been paid in full. And when that was done, what was stamped on it was the word tetelestai. It is dealt with. It is paid in full. Nothing more is required. It is absolutely accomplished. Of all the things that Jesus says on the cross, this 
he says in summary of everything else, all that he's been doing, coming into Jerusalem, the, the description he's given people of what the kingdom of God looks like in actual life, the, 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 the metaphors and, 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 and the parables of here's how you enter it, here's how you live in it, but more than that, the demonstrations. Here's what the kingdom is, and now here's how you, here's how you, you live in it. It means that if you, you're blind, now you can see you don't have enough food, now you have enough food. You, you're, you're, you're riddled and, 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 and broken and, and utterly crushed by shame, and I'm lifting that off of you. That's what the kingdom looks like, and now he's saying, I want you to come all the way into the kingdom, but you don't come in by religious performance. You come in by mercy. You come in by the full weight of everything that would keep us out being put on Jesus. All of our sin, all of our selfishness, all of our pride, all of our brokenness, right? This is the message of the gospel, the good news. The way it's summarized in Colossians 3 is this way. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them, triumphing over them by the cross. I want you to pay attention to this word. Having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness. If you've been around TGC for a while, we've talked about this phrase before, but the Greek word there is choreographon, and it's essentially like a list of accusations. So, like, even if you don't believe in the concept of, 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 of sin and, and a divine authority, like, all of us have some list of accusations, even that we point at ourselves. Like, I'm not living up to my own story in the way I want to, let alone a holy God. So whatever would keep us out, whatever would disqualify us, whatever would keep us as second-class citizens, whatever would keep us as dramatically as the Scripture says, spiritually dead, is a part of that, the charge of our indebtedness. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, they nailed something above his head, and it was a choreographon. It was a charge of legal indebtedness, right? They said, this is the king of the Jews. And every single one of our charges of legal indebtedness was right there with it. Every single one, and when Jesus is dying on the cross, as he's about to give up his spirit, he cries out to Telestai, which means he, he cries out, it is finished. This accusation that you feel externally or internally or from any source, it is finished. So all who trust in the finished work of Jesus on the, Christ, and on the cross can be utterly free and forgiven, thoroughly healed of their sin, selfishness, and pride, all of it. He cries out, it is finished, because he is accomplishing the work of our redemption. This is the new exodus accomplished by the Passover lamb. And I know many of you've heard that before. <laughs> and I want to I want to introduce a subtle um, error that I think that we can make when we when we when we hear it is finished, <laughs> because the truth of the matter is it's grace beyond what you could possibly fathom. There's literally nothing that you would have to do to make yourself ready to be accepted by God. Jesus has 100% totally and completely accepted you. And so many of us have had experiences of that in the past where we have, we've prayed and we've received the acceptance and freedom that comes from God because it is finished. But then 
We go on living and we find out that a lot of the accusation that we were dealing with, we're still feeling. A lot of the shame we were, we were, we were still dealing with, we're still feeling. A lot of the, the patterns of thought and behavior aren't finished at all. And so one of the, 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 the misconceptions about our faith grows that like there's these beautiful high ideals about grace and forgiveness and utter freedom, but then there's my real life and there's a huge gap between the two because Jesus is saying it is finished and I believe that that matters somehow for me off in the distance somewhere when I get to the, the new age or, or or, or I pass through death that I'm gonna be accepted because Jesus said it is finished. But what about right now and the fact that I am absolutely plagued by these thoughts? That I'm absolutely plagued. Does, does Jesus, it is finished, really mean that there's power for it to be finished, whatever's been plaguing me, whatever's been gripping me, whatever's been addicting me, whatever's been bearing down and, and causing my mind to, to, to writhe in the frenzy of anxiety, to be, to be buckling under the weight of depression. Can he really say over your life today, it is finished. I think a lot of you believe that Jesus said it is finished on the cross 2,000 years ago, but that doesn't have very much bearing on your conscious reality today. So I wanna say this is what we can't miss. <laughs> the very best thing for the world, I really believe, would be for the loving powerful, healing, gracious kingship of Jesus to be realized across the world. I really believe that would be the very, and, and, and so that's the cry, Hosanna, save us, be, be the king that we need. But that means that the very best thing for your life would be for Jesus to be the king of it, right? We're comfortable with Jesus as, as Passover lamb. Many of us, especially if you grew up in church, you are comfortable with Jesus as Passover lamb, but you're a little bit less comfortable with Jesus as king. Absolute authority in your life, absolute trustworthiness. He's going to lead you more graciously, more kindly, more mercifully, more loving than any other thing that you would give ultimate allegiance to, than any other thing that you would give ultimate influence to in your life. But if you refuse to say, Jesus, you are my king, then you're never gonna hear the full weight of it, is, of it is finished. Now, don't, don't hear me construing that you have to add good religious work to what Jesus has done. You can't add a single thing to the cross to, to win your acceptance. You were utterly accepted and brought in. It is utterly finished. There's no accusation that can be brought against you because of any sin that, that isn't dealt with. You were dealt with on the cross. You are not better at sinning than Jesus is at redeeming. But when he says it is finished, you have to agree in your spirit and say, it is finished. This pattern of thought, this pattern of behavior, this way of living out of my small story of selfishness, it is finished. It is finished. It's not like God's like, I've given you infinite free passes to continue in the patterns that you're, you're going in. And on one level, yeah, there's enough grace to cover you if, if, if you continue to sin just as blatantly from the moment you receive God's grace until you die, there's enough grace to cover you for that. Yes, you could do it, but you will never experience the abundant life that Jesus is talking about because you have to let his it is finished come all the way into you and say, I am finished. Like you have to say with Jesus, his death becomes our death so that his, his resurrection can become our rejection. You say it is finished. 
This way of trying to get rest and refreshment from the things of this world, this way of trying to live this small story of my ambition, climbing, climbing the mountain of achievement, this way of, of, of getting my, my, my rest at the end of every day from alcohol or television, this, this way of, 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 of finding release through, through lust and the imagination of my mind, this, this way of spending my money only on myself, that is finished. I know many of you believe that Jesus has set you free from some ultimate penalty from sin way off in the distance 70 years from now, but do you believe that he has set you free from the power of it today? It is finished means Passover is accomplished, and it is finished means Hosanna is accomplished that he is somehow the lamb and also the king, the one who forgives and the one who leads us to full life. I love, I love what John Ortberg has a book called Eternity is Now in Session, and he says this, and we're about to, to close. He says, our greatest need is not to be saved from what might happen to us, but to be saved from what might happen in us, not from where we might end up, but from who we might become. God doesn't hate sin because he's anti-pleasure. He invented pleasure. He hates sin because it promises so much and offers so little. Some of you have been living in the interplay between the massive promise of the way you've always done things out of selfishness and pride and sin and how little it actually delivers. And you're frustrated with life and you feel like I wanna give up. And it's because on some level we're not allowing the it is finished of Jesus to come crashing into our very real existence. Do you know what it would mean for Jesus both to be the Passover lamb and to be the king? That's the two stories he's merging together on Palm Sunday. And this is what it would mean. Have you ever had one of those moments, and maybe it just was a passing one, where you were living fully in your purpose? Like, you know, I'm supposed to be doing this. Like, the electricity of being alive is running through my body. I, I am acknowledging the real reality of the world, and I am living fully alive in that reality. This is who I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Often it's like I've got a vision for my life. I've got an intention of what I'm supposed to be doing, and I'm living it out in practicality, right? I, I, I'm drinking from, from, from the well of meaning. I'm drinking from the well of community, do you guys know what that purposefulness feels like? That's what a king is coming to offer, right? Our democratic society, right? Like, I mean, it's not like that's working perfectly. But we struggle a little bit with the absolute authority of a monarch because we say, right, we, we know from our own story, like absolute power corrupts absolutely. But not if that absolute power loves you so much he's willing to die, to bring you in. Jesus is the one king you can really trust, who, who you can say, listen, I want you to help define reality for me, and then I want you to give me the strength and power and instructions to live in that reality fully alive. That's Jesus as king. Jesus as Passover lamb, as deliverer, as the one who, who you know, sets us free from the false pharaohs of our pride and leads us through the Red Sea of baptism into a new life. He's saying, listen, when you're living at, with me as king, even in this world, you're gonna get tripped up with thought patterns and, and, and sins and mistakes and failures. And that's why every week we have a confession. It's to unburden ourselves to say, I come back to you, Jesus, and I believe with all my heart, you said it's finished, so I'm saying it's finished. 
I snapped at my kids yesterday. I, I, I feel insecure about this thing at, 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 at work. I constantly believe I'm gonna get rest and refreshment from television. I believe that I gotta curate my own soul with what I need and these little knickknacks that I've gotta accrue for myself and this accomplishment. I come and I say, that's finished. I really believe you are the one who gives me life and gives it to the full. That's what it means for him to be the king riding in on a donkey and to be the Passover lamb crying out on the tree to Telestai. That's what Hosanna and it is finished mean together. He is the king. Nothing, right? We start so often with these therapeutic needs. I need to feel purposeful. I need to feel free. I need to feel fulfilled. And we let those longings, which are real and true, and I believe given to us by God, to guide our stories. And we go about trying to get all these things that actually, in so many ways, are the result of something else. <laughs> like, like, like joy is like that, right? And, and love is in a sense like that. If, like, if, if, you're, if you're just going after the thing, it's so elusive. But when you're doing something that you were made to do, when you're living in freedom, when you're, then joy comes as, as a resultant emotion. The thing, same thing with purposefulness. It's like, hey, I'm receiving a, a, a name and an identity and a calling and, and, and an invitation into a whole world of reality and to live in that reality full and then to live there freely. God doesn't mind our therapeutic needs whatsoever, but ultimately, they begin to be met in a significant way when we can say, Hosanna, and it is finished. When we can say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, and to Telestai, my sins have been utterly forgiven. I can walk in this freedom now. I can walk in this new it is finished reality. So, that's Palm Sunday. The week, the week is going to end as it begins. Somehow considering this man as a king of sorts. On the first day Jesus enters the city as a king, albeit in a humble procession. And then by Friday, he's gonna be hanging on a cross under the words, the king. And here's the thing. Both the procession on Palm Sunday, and the crucifixion on Good Friday, they both fail to have an imagination for what's coming next. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would cut through anything right now that is distracting our minds and hearts. If there's anything that's tugging on our attention that's not, that's not from you, that's not your voice, I pray you would just cut through that, God, that you would turn the volume up of the voice of your spirit louder than any despair, any discouragement, any frustration, any thoughts of what's coming later today. And for right now, just you would make a sanctuary in time where we could consider what you're saying to us. God, we prayed before this service. I've been, we've been believing all through it that you, you wanna fill people up with that, 
abundant life that is a combination of your, your purposefulness and sentness and vision and also, a combina- uh, and also con- contains your freedom. <laughs> that you want a people who are both, both purposeful and free and I believe you intend to give both of those as gifts from yourself. So I pray you would show each of us how we are meant to respond by the Holy Spirit. As we come to the table, as we worship, as we pray for one another, would you minister to us your freedom? Would you minister to us your vision in life? In Christ's name, amen.